Well, this morning we're going to jump right into the text. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bible, if you will, to Amos chapter 6. And we're going to continue our journey. We're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've passed the halfway mark on our way to the book of Amos. And before we read the passage, I want to go ahead and tell you the theme today. The theme is the power of humility. There is incredible power to the humility a person could display, which, which by the way, I know it doesn't sound like humility. It almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? Humility sounds like the opposite of power. Sounds like lowering yourself, sounds like weakness. And, and I think maybe in the eyes of the world that would be true. But if you look at it biblically, humility always has incredible power. Now, I'll bet you, you already understand this, especially if you're a parent. If you're a parent, you've seen this at play. So I, I got six kids. I've learned a, a lot of things through parenting. One of the things I've learned is just how differently I respond when one of my children approaches me humbly, kindly, or when they approach me defiantly and arrogantly. I mean, it's night and day. So, so this is just a, a few weeks ago. I had a, a child of mine who shall remain unnamed. But this particular child was talking off to her mama. And, and I walked up right as she was having a pretty bad tone with her mom. And so I, I walked up to my child and I said, hey, listen, child of mine, this is not how you're going to talk to your mother. This is my wife and I don't let anyone talk to my wife that way. You need to be careful with your tone. To which my child looked up at me and said, daddy, you don't even know what's going on. Why don't you just stay out of our business? <laughs> so, so if you're a parent, you, you, you and I don't have to be BFFs for you to know how I responded to that. I didn't respond kindly and humbly. I was ticked that she would bow up at me that way, have that kind of defiance. And so I said, oh, oh, you want me to stay out of your business, do you? So how about when it's time to buy clothes for school, you want me to stay out of your business then? Or how about when it's time for dinner, you need some food in front of them, you want me to stay out of your business then? Or, or maybe tonight when you want to go to bed on my bed in my room that I let you sleep in, you want me to stay out of your business? Or how about at Christmas time? And I just keep going on and I'm just tearing into this girl. She's just like, her hair's blown back because I'm just coming in with wrath. But I was responding that way because she had bowed up in opposition to me and it made me oppose her. That's what pride does. Pride brings opposition. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Have any of you parents out there ever experienced that? Because my guess is if you have a child that's three and over, you've probably experienced it multiple times. It is one of the things of parenting that we deal with. But, but here's what's so interesting about it. Just a few days later, with this exact same child of mine, I'm, I'm walking in and, and I'm talking to her and she gets a tone with me. She starts to kind of bow up again, and she says something that's rude. And I say, now listen, child, it is not okay for you to talk to me that way. I love you, but I will not let you talk to me that way. Now I'm preparing again. I'm girding up my loins. We're about to have another fight here. And then she surprises me and she goes, you know what, daddy, you're right. I, that was unacceptable. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? It was the craziest thing. I was like, who is this child? Where, is, is this my child I'm trying to poke to make sure she's really there? Like what in the world? And it was so crazy. Like immediately all my defenses went down. My, my blood pressure lowered, my heart rate slowed. And I was, I was moved. I just grabbed her and I hugged her. And I said, absolutely, I'll forgive you, baby. Thank you for apologizing. Here's a hundred bucks. No, I didn't really give her a hundred bucks, although I wanted to. I was so moved by it. Now she may be watching this and just in case, baby, if you hear this, don't take advantage of this. But that girl could have asked me for anything in the world and I would have given it to her. I was just so blown away by her humility. It moved my heart. And let me tell you why that matters. Humility moves the heart of a father and it is no different with our heavenly father. When we approach him pridefully, we find his opposition when we put ourselves up against God. But when we approach him humbly, we can stir his heart toward us. 
One of the greatest lessons I can give you isn't my lesson to give you. It comes from James. He's a half-brother of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 6. In fact, I want you to write this down. I want you to memorize this one truth that comes straight from God's word, James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you would learn that, memorize it, etch it in stone somewhere, let that dig into your heart. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It will be a guiding light for you your entire life. You will either have God fighting for you or against you, and it all depends on the way that you approach him. This is the very lesson that Amos needs to teach arrogant Israel, and he's going to teach them that in chapter 6 and early on into chapter 7. And I think if we'll just listen into this lesson, let it teach us, we'll find God fighting for us and not against us. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the first seven verses as we dig into the passage. Now you're going to start off seeing that these are the woe passages. There are three of them. It actually began last week in, in chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you. And then in chapter 6, in verse 1, and then again in verse 4, you're going to see these woe passages that come. And these are him saying warning signs to the nation of Israel. So chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see. Go from there and go from there to Hamath the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So these verses right here are a warning coming to Israel from Amos. And he's basically saying in this woe passage, there are two things that are going on right now. It is your self-sufficiency, your complacency, that's verses one through three. And then it's your self-indulgence and your opulence, that's verses four through six. And he's taking each one of these to point out their pride. So let's look first at their self-sufficiency, at their independence from God. You see it all the way back in verse one. He says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. Now, what he's talking about in these two places, he's talking about the capital cities, one of Jerusalem or one of Judah and one of Israel. So Zion is just another way of saying Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. So he's saying those of you in Jerusalem who feel at ease in your city. And he says, those of you who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. Now, here's what's interesting about both of those cities. They're both built right on top of mountaintops. I had the privilege of going to Israel before and getting to see Jerusalem. And its, its walls are impenetrable because it sits on a mountaintop guarded all the way around. There was hardly a nation that could come against it because it was so easy to defend. The mountain of Samaria was the exact same way. Samaria was built precisely where it was because it was easy to build walls and defend the city. And so he's saying to them, basically, you guys feel so safe and secure. You're just kicking back at ease because you think your walls will protect you. Your mountaintop city will protect you. And he's trying to warn them, you're in grave danger because you're trusting in the walls of your city more than in your God. You're growing arrogant, he's telling them. You see, what was going on here, if you remember from the intro of this sermon series uh, a number of weeks back, this was a time of great prosperity for the nation of Israel time of unusual military power. They were expanding their king, kingdom to the same borders under the golden age under Solomon. They were rich. They were powerful. They were at peace. This was a high time for Israel. And they were getting a little too big for their own britches. 
They were starting to think too highly of themselves. And he's going, watch out, guys, because you are not indestructible. That's why he talks about in verse two, he says, go over to Kalna, then go down to Hamath the Great, go down to Gath. Those are three cities that used to be strong cities. In fact, they were called city-states. These were independent. They had their own king. They had their own policy. They were own independence. They were powerful people who never thought they would be crushed. But over the course of time, Israel had crushed Kalna and had crushed Hamath. And then down in the south, Gath had been crushed by Judah. So these cities that thought they were indestructible had been conquered by Israel and Judah. And he's saying, look at these cities. They were arrogant and look what you did to them. And watch out, Israel and Judah, because you're arrogant and don't think the same thing will come to you. He's trying to call out their prideful self-sufficiency, their independence. But it wasn't just that. It was also their self-indulgence, their opulence. And, and, and I know Amos has talked about this. If you've been tracking along the sermon series, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this has kind of been a repeated theme. But he's basically talking to the rich people in the city of Samaria going, you guys, you won't settle for anything except the absolute best for you. It's not enough just to get to sleep on a bed, even though that was uncommon. Your bed has to be inlaid with ivory. It's not enough just to eat meat, even though that was uncommon. You have to eat lamb chops and veal. It's not enough just to get to drink glasses of wine. He says in verse six, you drink wine in bowls. I mean, you just, you want, you want a slopping amount of it. This was just, everything was indulgence and opulence and over the top. And they thought so highly of themselves. Like they could just do this. And, and the worst part wasn't just their luxury. The worst part is they were living in such opulence when everyone around them was suffering so deeply. That's what he was getting at in verse six. He says, you drink wine in bowls, you anoint yourselves with the finest oils, but you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. When he mentions the ruin of Joseph, Joseph was just another name for Israel, another name for the people of God that are all around them. He's saying, you're living in your capital city of Samaria, living in this opulence over the top while everyone else around you just starving to death and you don't even care about their ruin. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, it made me think of the movie. Uh, maybe you've seen The Hunger Games before or maybe read the books, but it makes me think about the, the capital city in Pan Am. This city had so much opulence, so much money, so much over-the-top extravagance, and all these 12 districts around them were suffering hungry and over-the-top. In fact, there was a, a part in, I think it's the second movie, when they, they were at a, a party that was taking place in the capital city, this massive party, and part of the party was you could drink a drink that would make you vomit so that you could eat more food. And that was the kind of opulence they had. That's basically what he's describing here. He's describing the capital of Pan Am. That's how Samaria was. They were just self-indulgent, over the top, drinking wine in bowls while people were starving and hurting all around them. And he's saying, you guys think that you're so much and you don't realize that all you're doing with your pride is you're making yourself an enemy of Almighty God. You are putting yourself in opposition because remember, God opposes the proud. And, and there's a little wordplay that you, you miss in English, depending on the translation that you read in, from verses one to verse seven about them being first. If you go back to verse one and it says, woe to those who are in Zion, those on Samaria. He says, the notable men of the first of the nations. Now, if you were reading that in Hebrew, it literally says, and the first of men of the first of nations. In other words, of Israel, who they believe to be the mightiest nation, we're the first of men, we're the cream of the crop, the first of men of the first of nations. And he says, you think you're all that in a bag of chips, but in verse seven, let me tell you what's gonna happen. You're gonna be the first to go into exile. You think you're the first and you're right, but your first isn't in might, it's in exile. And this is exactly what happened. Over 40 years later, Assyria comes and they destroy the nation. They 
they ransack the indestructible city of Samaria and the first people to go out in exile are the rich in Samaria, just as Amos had prophesied. What he's trying to show them is that their pride, their self-indulgence, living for themselves was simply making them enemies of Almighty God. Because God didn't just oppose pride, he hates pride. In fact, that's where he's gonna go next in verse eight. Let's keep on reading. And here you're gonna see the key verse of the entire chapter. Listen to the strong language that God uses about pride. Verse eight says, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And those are powerful terms. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I can't stand, I hate his strongholds. I mean, this is not language that God uses lightly. And what he's trying to teach us here is that God isn't just neutral. He doesn't just stand in, in slight opposition to pride. He abhors it. He will fight against it over and over and over again. Now, the best way for you to understand what he's talking about, what Amos is talking about, is to understand the term pride of Jacob and to understand the term stronghold. Because these two things show us where we're in the greatest danger. They're really dealing with two aspects of pride. When he talks about, I abhor the pride of Jacob, that's referring to their nationalistic pride, the pride of being a part of the nation of Israel, because Jacob is just another name for Israel. So he's saying, I abhor the fact that you think you're so special just because you're the nation of Israel, because you think you're God's chosen people. You think you're better than everybody else. And I abhor your nationalistic pride, the way you look down on everybody else around you. Now, I got to take a little time out right here, and I got to say something. For those of you watching this who live in the United States of America, can I just say we got we to gotta be really careful and paying close attention to what he's saying here because there are many of us in danger of this same thing. God abhors nationalistic pride. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be grateful. I've already talked about it. We should be absolutely grateful that we live in a country where we have freedoms, where we can worship our God. We should praise God that we get to live here in this country. But the moment we start to find our identity, our value in the country that we live, and the moment we start thinking we're better than everybody else, and trust me, this affects your view of immigration and how you handle people who come to our country and how you view the rest of the world. The moment we start thinking we're better than everybody else, we have pitted ourselves in a place that God absolutely abhors. And we should be very cautious with that. Now, I know some, there are many of you watching going, well, listen, man, I, I don't apparently suffer with that because I, I, I don't have nationalistic pride. I mean, I'm grateful for my country, but I'm not, I don't think I'm better than anybody else. Well, I want you to watch out too because there are other ways that we live this pride out. This is a pride of finding significance and value in anything other than God. And let me go ahead and tell you, there are a lot of places that we look to to find meaning and value and significance. Or a lot of us, we look to our careers to give us meaning. We're so proud of the job that we have. We're proud of the house that we live in. We're proud of the clothes that we wear. We're proud of the car that we drive. We're proud of all these things, the relationship that we're in. We have all these things that we're proud of. And every time we start to find our value, our significance in those things, we have now pride in us that God absolutely abhors. And we have to be very cognizant of that danger point of pride. But, but it's not just in where we find our value and significance. It's also in where we find our safety. That's what he was getting at the second part. He says, I hate his strongholds. That term strongholds is referring to the, the place, the inner sanctum inside the city that was basically a defense even after the wall defense. It was a place where you could run to if the enemy breached the walls and was coming in, you could go to the, the tower, the stronghold, and from there it was almost impossible to overcome. 
And these were places built by their hands that they felt the most safe and secure in. And what he's saying is, I hate whenever you try to find security in other places besides me. And I want you to know, you and I have to, have, we have to have great caution with this too because we look in so many places to find our safety and our security. There are many of us who look to our parents to provide safety and security. We look to a spouse to do that. We look to a, a job to do that. We look to a nest egg or to a retirement plan or to a savings account. All these things, we look to these things to give us our safety and our security. And he, God is saying, I hate it when you look to those things. I hate your strongholds. I hate your self-made plans of protection and security. In fact, there's a truth I think every single one of us needs to learn. Here's another one that I want you to write down. God hates anything that we trust in more than him. There's not a thing you can fill in the blank right there that he doesn't hate when we put our trust in. God hates anything that we trust in more than him. If, if you would just chew on that, digest that a bit, let that be the guiding principle for your life, it will help you so much when, you, when it comes to making hard decisions. Are you putting your faith in God or in something else? Because God hates it when we put our faith in anything else other than him. But, but God's not a hateful, smiteful God. The reason he hates it is because, yes, he's a jealous God, but, he, because he, but he's jealous because he knows he's the best thing for us. You see, he knows that anything that we put our faith in other than him will ultimately lead us to enmity with him. You should write that idea down. Anything that we put our faith in other than him, our trust in other than him, will lead us to enmity with him. It'll make us enemies of God. And here's the reason why. Every morning you and I wake up, we have a choice to make. We have a choice of what we're going to decide to put our faith in, our trust in. We're either going to look to God and trust in him, or we're going to look to something else. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality in this. We look to God or we look to something or someone else. And every time we look to something or someone else other than God, we have now made ourselves enemies of God. We have chosen that pathway over God, said, God, you are not good enough. And we have now become enemies of Almighty God. And let me go ahead and tell you, it will not do well for us to be enemies of an infinite God. It is complete and total foolishness for us to pit ourselves against God because we're trusting in something else other than God. In fact, this is exactly where Amos goes as we continue on the passage in verses 9 through 14. He's going to try to open up Israel's eyes to see their utter foolishness for making themselves enemies of God. Keep on reading. Verse 9, here's what it says. It says, If ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, we have, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Let's stop there. So what he's saying in verses 9 through 11 is basically, guys, your destruction is going to be complete. You have made yourselves enemies of God. Remember, God opposes the proud and he will utterly decimate you. Verses 9 and 10, he says, there won't be a single person left alive in the house. It's going to take them all. Verse 11, it doesn't matter if you live in a big house or a little house, they're all going to be wiped out. The destruction will be total. But really, it's verses 12 and 13 where you get the key of what Amos is saying. He's talking about their foolishness. He says in verse 12, do horses run on rocks? 
does one plow there with oxen? Now, in your mind, when you read that, you might think of like a gravelly ground, but that's not, that's not the word used in Hebrew. Literally, it's a singular word for rock. It says, do horses run on the rock? And usually that word in Hebrew is translated as the boulder or a cliff. And it's this idea that you wouldn't go on top of a huge mountaintop boulder right on a cliff and run your horse wild over there because the horse will run right off. If you want to live, no one's going to be foolish enough to run your horse on the wild rock. And then he says, do you plow there with oxen? Do you go up on a boulder and get your oxen and then try to plow that boulder? No, you wouldn't because you can't cut into it. It'd be foolishness. Now, there may be some of you going, wait, wait, I don't see what you're talking about with the whole boulder thing here. Mine says, does one plow the sea with oxen? Well, the, the reason why there's discrepancy, some say there, some say sea, is because the word in Greek, or excuse me, the word in Hebrew is, is very easy to mistake between sea and here. So they're, they're very similar words. But listen, it's just as foolish for somebody to go try to, uh, to plow oxen in the sea, whether it's on a boulder or in the sea, his point is the exact same. It's complete foolishness. No one would do it. Then he says, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. He said, guys, you're just as foolish. We already learned last week that God wants justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These matter to God, justice and righteousness. And so when we take what matters to God and we flush it down the toilet, we turn it into poison. We make ourselves enemies of God. He's going, how could you be so foolish? And he says, listen, guys, you think you're strong enough to withstand the attack of the enemy and God, but you're not. Stop rejoicing in things that don't matter. That was verse 13. He says, you who rejoice in low Debar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? Now, these two cities are interesting because they're a play on words in Hebrew. He says, you rejoice in capturing low Debar. Low Debar literally in Hebrew means nothing, means not a thing, literally. He's saying, you're rejoicing because you conquered nothing. <laughs> and then he says, yeah, you're saying, by our own strength, haven't we captured Karnaim? Now, Karnaim, literally in Hebrew, means, means two horns. Now, in Hebrew mindset, a horn was a place of strength. And he's, got, he's going, guys, you're so foolish. You think by your own strength, you captured the place of two horns, but you're not strong enough with your one horn to capture the two horns. God Almighty is the one who captured that city. Stop being so foolish to rejoice in what you think is your own strength when it's really God's strength. You've captured nothing. Stop trusting in yourselves. Stop opposing God because it's foolishness. And that's why Amos comes back in verse 14. He says, let me go ahead and remind you of the foolishness of opposing God. He says, I'm gonna raise up an army against you a nation against you, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath all the way down to the brook of the Arabah. And these are just the extremes. Lebo Hamath is all the way to the north above Israel, and the Arabah is below the Dead Sea to the south. So the entire nation, I'm going to oppress you completely so that you see who's the true power. And here's Amos's point over and over again. Guys, wake up. God opposes the proud. Stop approaching God with your chest puffed up. Stop approaching this world thinking you're better than anybody else. God opposes the proud. That's the bad news. But don't forget the good news I told you at the very beginning. Yes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is why as Amos moves on in chapter 7, he wants to show them a picture of the power of humility. How God responds, how the Father responds to a humble heart. So let's finish up the text as we move into chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. 
And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. All right, so what, what you're seeing here is, is two visions that God gave Amos. Visions of coming judgment, of punishment. The first one in verses one through three was a, a vision of a locust plague. And God shows him these forming locusts and he shows them the image of them devouring all the grass of the land, leaving nothing left for the farmers and the people. And immediately when he sees his coming judgment, all Amos can do is fall down and say, oh God, please. No, we're not strong enough. He's humbling himself saying, God, only you can save us, please. We're, we're too small. And then it says the Lord relented. And then again in verse four, another judgment, this one by fire. And it says the fire was gonna be so great it was gonna devour the, the great deep. And when it says the great deep, it's talking about the subterranean waters that fed the springs and fed the wells. And this was their water source, how they were gonna drink, how they were gonna irrigate. And the fire was gonna be so devastating, it was gonna wipe everything out. Total destruction. And all Amos can do is fall down again and say, oh God, please, no. Oh God, let it cease. We can't do this without you. He's humbling himself saying, God, without you, we won't make it, please. And then it says, the Lord God relented. And what you're seeing a picture of here is Amos humbling himself through prayer, asking for God's mercy. And more importantly, what you're seeing is the profound mercy of Yahweh God. That when someone would humble themselves before the Father, the Father's heart is stirred. And even though they didn't deserve it, he said, I will relent. I won't bring this about right now. What incredible mercy. It, it's just like my daughter when she came up to me and she, she came and she did wrong, but she humbled herself and said, please, I'm sorry, forgive me. I, my heart was stirred. Of course I was gonna forgive her. And our heavenly father is the same way when a person humbles himself before God and says, oh God, I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me. He forgives, he relents, he brings life. What a beautiful picture of the heart of our father. But I think what stirs me the most is what I see in this about how God works. I, I don't know if you noticed it, but it wasn't what you would expect. You would expect the father to relent if the nation of Israel humbled themselves. Because that's where the attack has been. It's the arrogance, the pride of the nation of Israel. And you would expect God to bring this threatening punishment and Israel to go, oh my goodness, oh God, I'm sorry, forgive me. And then the Lord would relent if, if Israel repented. But there's nowhere in here where the nation of Israel repents. They don't even know about the coming judgment. There's only one person who humbles himself. It's Amos. But here's what you learn. The father is so forgiving that when one man will humble himself, it can be applied to a multitude. Now, let me tell you why that matters. This is just foreshadowing a man who would come later. A man named Jesus Christ. A man who would one day humble himself before the father and the father would so be moved by his son's humility that he would apply that humility to all the multitude who would look to him for salvation. I mean, just think about it. There was a moment on the cross when Jesus had the audacity to say to the father, father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's humbling himself on their behalf. And the reason why the father listened was because the night before in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, 
he humbled himself and said, yet not my will, your will be done. And the moment Jesus humbled himself before the father, it so stirred the heart of the father that he listened to his son when his son said, father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And what a beautiful message of the cross that we sinned against God, that we've done wrong, that we deserve punishment. And it, a complete punishment. And because Jesus would humble himself on our behalf, the father relents and says, I'll forgive you, my child. What a beautiful message that you and I hear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I think the most important thing we could do today as we finish up our time together is to enjoy the beauty of the humbling of Jesus Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna take the Lord's Supper in a moment and we're gonna celebrate the magnitude of that humbling, that he had to give up his body. He had to shed his blood. And that was the level of humbling that he was willing to do before the Father so that you and I could receive the benefit but before we go there, I, I got to say something to you because there, there is something God wants to do in your heart. I, I believe Jesus Christ didn't just humble himself for our salvation. He also set for us a pattern. He showed us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to humble ourselves as well before an almighty God. And, and I think that you and I don't even realize the magnitude of pride that has crept into our hearts. Let me go ahead and tell you this. Pride is an insidious thing. N none of us asks to be proud. We, we, don't, we don't want to be proud people. It just creeps in. We don't even realize it. And I'm afraid of there's, there's a ton of you watching this right now and your heart is so filled with pride and you are at a place where God himself is opposing you and you don't even know it. And the reason why is because you are not aware enough of your pride to humble yourself. So there's actually a test you can take to know whether pride is dwelling in your heart or not. It's a very simple one. So the last point I want to give you, it's a point I, I want you to write down. Here's what it is. The clearest demonstration of pride is the absence of prayer. Write that down. You want to know whether pride is dwelling in your heart? Just look at your prayer life. Let me tell you why. Because when you do not pray, you are telling Almighty God, I don't need you. When you pray, you are saying, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nothing else I got left to do. God, I need you. And every time we do not pray, and I know there are all kinds of excuses that you want to pray more, but you never get around to it. You know, you got work to do. You got, you got kids to cart around. You got stuff to get done. You got mow the lawn. You got all these things going on. And, and, and you're trying so hard to solve your problems. And you don't even realize the arrogance of that. You are saying by your actions, no, God, it's more important that I do my thing first. And then if I got any leftover time, I'll come to you. But think about the pride of that. And yet prayer says, God, I want to go to you first. I mean, if you want to know whether you're walking with a humble heart, the moment something comes your way, you should be the kind of person that falls to your knees and says, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to pray because I got nowhere else to turn but God. I mean, I just, I just had a glimpse of it. Just, just this past week, there's a dear sister in our church named Charlotte Mabry who's been in the hospital for a while and, and suffering through COVID and pneumonia and, and kidney issues and lung issues and and, and I, I was feeling so powerless in the house. I don't know why I'm so thick. It took me so long to think about it. Finally, I just sent out a, a Facebook post going, listen, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go up to, to Mansfield Methodist. That's where she was at the time. We're just going to gather together as a, a group and we're going to pray. And I sent that out and I drove. And I didn't know if I was going to be there, maybe one or two people. And about 30 people showed up there from 10 to 11 p.m. And we just had a prayer gathering outside of Mansfield Methodist Hospital. And it was, it was so beautiful. Here was a group of people saying, we don't know what to do, but pray. Because God, we know that you work miracles. 
And that night, God sustained her. It got real dicey. And she woke, she went through that night because there were people who were willing to bow down and pray. She had a husband who was bowing down to pray. And I saw the power of God when people will pray. And listen, God shouldn't have to drag us to the end where we get so desperate, the last thing we do is pray. It should be the first thing that we do. I wanna challenge you to pray. Listen, we're gonna sing a song that declares, Lord, I need you. And it should be the cry of our hearts. But let me say, during that song, you may need to get down on your knees and you may need to pray. There may be something going on in your life right now and you need to stop being prideful. And you say, okay, God, I'm gonna spend this time and I'm gonna pray. And then there's something else I wanna ask you to do. I haven't asked you to do this yet, but I think it's, it's something you need to do, something the Lord has put on our hearts as a, a pastoral staff and leadership team. I wanna ask you to let us know what your prayer request is. And I know it takes a lot of humility to do that because uh, many of you are guarded. You're gonna keep your things to yourself kind of person. And I'm asking you to get your phone out and to text the word prayer to 94253, just like you see it right there on your screen. And when you text that number, it's gonna take you to a form where you can type out your prayer request. Or you can go straight to the website. You can go to filler.org slash prayer and it'll take you to the same form. And you fill out and let us know how you want us to pray for you. I'm asking you, don't be too proud. Let us join and, and someone from the pastoral staff will pray for you and reach out to you and let you know that we've prayed for you. But prayer is an act of humility. And joining others to pray is an act of humility. And I wanna encourage you to do so. I pray you will. But let me say this one last thing. There are some of you watching this and you need to pray the most important prayer of humility of your life, the prayer of faith and repentance. There is nothing more humbling than admitting before Almighty God, I've screwed up. I'm a sinner and I'm broken and I can't save myself. Nothing more humbly than saying, oh God, forgive me for my sins and take over my life. I can't run this life. I won't do it right. Take over. And there may come a moment when you get desperate enough. And I believe there's some of you watching this right now and you're desperate enough to finally pray to humble yourself up and ask God to forgive you and to let Jesus take over your life. Give him control. If you're ready to do that, he's ready to listen to you right now. And we as pastors want to pray with you. We want to help you in this journey of faith. So you can go to the exact same place. You can text the word prayer to 94253. And in that same form, you can just let us know that you're ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You're ready to invite God to take over. If you're ready to do that, let us know. We want to pray for you. We want to help you in this. But right now during this time, I want you to get your Lord's Supper supplies ready. We're going to declare before Almighty God that we need Him in song. And if you need to fall down and pray, if you need to text prayer to 94253, whatever you need to do, you do it. And then when we're done, I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper.